2: for free shipping and 365 day returns.
0: Welcome to Face to Face. This is a show about change and what's next. It's a show that asks questions and peels back the layers of our average everyday experience and goes beyond scratching the surface. We interview people doing incredible things who are making a difference around the globe. Join me as we listen in and get one step closer to understanding that big ideas shared create collaboration Collaboration can inspire community, and communities create social change. I'm David Peck, and this is Face to Face. So my next interview is with Jason Loftus, and we had a great time talking about his new film, Eternal Spring. It's done very well in the festival circuit. In fact, it's still doing a festival tour. You may have seen it at Hot Docs or might have heard about it. It was an award winner there, a couple of awards, actually. And you're going to be hearing more about Jason's new film, Eternal Spring. Check it out, eternalspringfilm.com and uh please stay tuned for this interview we it, it, this really is a remarkable story about the human condition it's a, it's a remarkable story about pushing back it's uh, we jason and i talk about human rights and we talk about journalism and disinformation we talk about how uh, this story uh, is rooted in kind of a heist story that was sort of, um, as Jason says, written for them. Uh, we, we talk about seeing uh, the world through the lens of an artist and about narrative shifts. We talk about opposition and about oppression and catharsis. And we get into Aristotle poetry and storytelling. And, you know, that wasn't my fault this time. Uh, but but uh, Jason did uh, bring up the early Greek philosophers. We talk about timely universals and, and how important that is uh, to us right now as we watch a story like Eternal Spring. We talk about pacifism and activism. We talk about what it might mean to be a complicit pacifist. How do we know in the moment? And and where does trust fit into all of this? And and how do we know when the waters just seem to be so uh, muddy when we look around? So do stay tuned for this interview. Uh, We had a great time. Always too short, it seems to me. Uh, And the film is going to be uh, opening in Canadian theaters in uh, September, September 23rd, 2022, just in case you're listening to this later than the release date, and hopefully you can find it somewhere online. So stay tuned. Jason Loftus talking about Eternal Spring. Don't forget, you can leave a review for us. Uh, We would so appreciate that. Wherever you listen to podcasts, if it's Apple, please uh, leave us a review there. And if it's on YouTube, uh, subscribe, uh, give us a thumbs up. All of the, the social media uh, like um, bits of business that we get involved in do help us push the conversation out a little farther. Getting face to face out into the world really is uh, what uh, I'm all about right now and, and doing our best to do that. We've been on a little bit of a hiatus and part of that's because I uh, picked up a radio gig and I'm uh, working on uh, radio now Um or have been for a couple of weeks. I've got a couple more weeks coming up and really looking forward to where that's going to take us. 6.40 a.m. I've been filling in on a show called On Point. So stay tuned for more information about that as well. But uh, yeah, coming right up, uh, don't forget to um, uh, davidpecklive.com for more information about the work that I do and the the book that I've written, Real Change is Incremental. And of course, face-to-face-live.ca for so many other interviews. Dig deep and you'll find, I think, some pretty fascinating conversations there online but stay tuned right now jason loftus and we're talking about his uh beautiful and brilliant new film eternal spring well welcome to face to face we're joined by a very special guest we have here with us today jason loftus he's uh he's an award-winning filmmaker and maybe uh going to be adding to that collection over the next uh i'm going to say what is it jason 12 or 14 months anyway jason thanks for joining me today on face to face
1: thanks so much for having me david appreciate it.
0: So I've already kind of alluded to to a to award season, I suppose. Is it is it is it bad luck to to even talk about it? Can can we talk well, about it? Well, we're at a
1: little we have to. We have to actually yeah. I need to I'm my job is to talk about it an awful lot now for the next four months because uh so uh we learned on Wednesday that uh we've been chosen by the pan-Canadian uh jury of you know, a couple dozen uh leaders in the in the film industry in Canada that we are Canada's entry for the uh, international feature category at the Oscars for 2023, which is just, you know, kind of mind blowing. It's an amazing honor, of course, but also it's the first time they've ever chosen a documentary, first time they've ever chosen an animated film or a Mandarin language film. So there's a lot of, a lot of firsts there. And also, uh, I I feel proud and honored because there's an amazing animation industry as well as documentary uh, community here in Canada. So I feel uh, I'm I'm thrilled to be able to represent uh, the talent that we have here with this. But yeah, it's uh, from now until uh, it's in sometime in December. Uh, actually, I've got a startup call with the folks at Telefilm who they've been through this before. I haven't. So we'll, right, we'll figure that right. out. But uh, but through till December, they do a shortlist. And then in January, it's the Amazing. nominees. But, but right now, we're Canada's entry. And of course, many countries have their entry as well.
0: Amazing. Congratulations. And you know what's so funny, Jason, is no one really knows what we're talking about yet. It's uh, <laughs> it's it's your new film, award-winning film from Hot Docs, Eternal Spring. I'm I'm hoping people have read the blurb on the site and, and maybe mm-hmm. seen the trailer by now. And, and by the way, uh, just for you, those of you who are listening, help me out here, Jason. It's eternalspringfilm.com. You've got it. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. we're in
1: theaters here in Canada September twenty third in the U.S. Amazing. October fourteenth. Yeah,
0: amazing. Well, congratulations not only on the Oscar, uh, can I say nod almost or a nod before the nod, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and congrats on the Hot Docs awards, the Audience Award, and the Rogers, and so on. Uh, tell us, tell us a little bit uh, about the film. Kind of provide some context. I have so many questions. And and congrats on the film as well.
1: Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I'll maybe I'll just start with how this all came about because yeah, I think be it great. kind of ties into the story and everything. I was making a Kung Fu video game a number of years ago <laughs> and it featured,
0: yeah. <laughs> so can I just say out of the gate, That's the yeah. I've, I'm, I'm over 600 interviews now after the last eight years. That's the first time that's that's been an intro of a guest. So that's awesome. So Good. awesome.
1: I like to be different
0: then. So
1: we were, you know, it it featured a lot of hand-drawn comic book art. And so we learned about this artist who was living in New York at the time named Dashong. And he was originally from China. He was drawing for Justice League and Star Wars comics. But also he'd worked with uh, Jin Yong, Louis Cha, who's kind of the leading Kung Fu novelist in China. So we thought, this is great. The guy has an amazing artistic talent, but also he's got the cultural background. And we brought him up to Toronto and he was working with us on this video game. And uh, collaborating, we got to know each other and we got to learn his story about why he had to leave his home. He's from the same hometown as my wife and producing partner, Masha Loftus, which is Chongqing is a city in the northeast of the country. And uh, my wife was a uh, the daughter of a mid-level government official there. So she didn't have any connection with the Falun Gong community that Dashong was part of or any sort of religious or persecuted group in China. And so just hearing what these people had gone through and and how this remarkable story, and in his case... You know, he's part of a, a, a spiritual group that is persecuted by the Chinese government, and they feel that they have no recourse to sort of counter this onslaught of state media, you know, narrative that's that's berating them constantly. And so a group of them hatch a plan to climb the television poles and hack into the central television, essentially interrupt the state TV broadcast with their own sort of homemade video message to, to counter the narrative and Dashong isn't actually part of the people of the small group that pulls off the hijacking, but he's part of the Falun Gong community in Changchun. And at that point, the authorities don't care who was involved and who wasn't. They're just arresting everybody, hoping they find who was. Right. And so uh, Dashong gets caught up in this dragnet. He ends up having to flee his hometown. Uh, He is arrested a few times and he does endure torture. So he's gone through so much. And this event has had a massive impact on his life. Um, And he's been sort of drawing some of these elements, but he doesn't. He he's, he wasn't directly involved, and and we ask him, you know, he's got this artistic ability, he's got this remarkable story, you know. And for my wife, I mean, this is something that happened. You know, a lot of the atrocities that we we're kind of talking about here happened under her nose in her own city. It really hits home for her. For me, I was familiar with Falun Gong. I came across it prior to the um, to the crackdown in China when when it was really very little known because of an interest in. You know, Eastern philosophy and meditation that I had in, in in my high school years, and so I was familiar with it. And what I heard in the state narrative just didn't reconcile with my own encounters with Falun Gong, and so I had an interest in the human rights situation in the story, and my wife did as well. And so we said, "Hey, you know what?" We talked with Dasheng, and he was willing to go on this journey, and use his illustrations and his art to sort of retrace this event, and we start trying to meet people who may know more, who were, you know, who can flesh out the individuals who are, you know, directly behind it. And we end up finding that there's one surviving TV hijacker who's managed to get outside of China and he's living in Seoul. So we travel there, we meet him, and and then this sort of this begins this journey of like Dashong drawing as he's interviewing people and sure. then us using our, our animation pipeline that we have to bring these drawings to life. And it so, gives us this kind of like live action. You really do.
0: You, you really do bring the drawings to life and the 3D animation. It, it you, you, You're you able to really step into it. It's really quite fascinating. I'd love to talk with you a little bit more about, about I guess, the opportunities as a director and a writer and a filmmaker that gave to you. Can, yeah. you, talk, can you tell us a little bit about Falun Gong? It was banned in China in nineteen. 19- 1999, I believe, which Correct. for me is super ironic, because that's the year The Matrix came out. Uh, I just, and it just <laughs> it just hit me as I was, you know, th- and not long uh, after V for Vendetta from the same uh, filmmaking team. Um, mm-hmm. so, so, yeah, can you tell us a little bit about that? Because what I remember, you know, of it in Toronto, usually, uh, mostly, um, other mm-hmm. cities, probably Ottawa, were, you know, a small group of people standing in front of an embassy holding a banner, you know yeah. maybe some music people practicing what appeared to be tai chi so my understanding of falun gong was very limited and i just i don't know can you help us understand a little I bit think people, i think most
1: people we- yeah most people are in that same boat yeah. i mean and you'll see them in front of the consulates sort of once this crackdown began before that they were you'd have to come across them and you know in a park or something like this where they were just going about their business i think the difference in china is that the number of people you would have seen would be much, much larger. So, you know, there there were estimates in the tens of millions, some people say potentially approaching a hundred million people practicing. And this had just been publicly introduced, this practice in 1992. And so um, by 1999, you're talking like massive, massive explosion of popularity. So, I mean, I think if you look at the context of what was going on in China, so this is something again, when I came across it in high school, uh, I didn't know a lot about the Chinese political situation. And so I was just like, hold on, you know, what I'm hearing doesn't match what I'm seeing. So this was my first foray into kind of, you know, Chinese disinformation and, and you know, the communist regime there and how they treat people. Um, but I've spent some time sort of looking at it. And so now in, in kind of retrospect, I look at it and I say, well, if you, you know, you see what happened in China. Um, once the communist party took power in 1949, it's, a, it's officially an atheist government, an atheist regime. And so, they were destroying temples. They were forcing monks to marry. Essentially, there was this opposition ideologically, as there is often in a communist regime with with religion and with spirituality and belief, right? Because there's this goal to sort of control that uh, and and have the sort of a monopoly on people's belief and ideology. And so I think Falun Gong was particularly a concern for the Communist Party because, you know the communi- communist ideology that was coming into China, is imported from the west it's a marxist ideal right and what you have in china is this practice that sort of is connected with these traditional spiritual ideas in chinese you know history and lore and such right so so that is where i think there's an even a a larger tension and also what you see with falun gong is that it was it emerged in the midst of the qigong boom so china had had these various political campaigns uh, the cultural revolution they had sort of targeted a lot of these traditional ideas and, and practices And then the country was in a bit of a shambles. And so there was this resurgence of what was called Qigong, which is, we've seen those kind of like slow moving movements and the extra, you know, practices in the parks and such, Sure, but they were tradition; they were typically devoid of the spiritual component, you know, and, and so that was, they were tolerated and they grew very quickly. And what happened is that Falun Gong emerged in the midst of this Qigong boom, but it had this kind of spiritual component to it. So
0: Jason, almost rooted in a, in a meditative practice uh, rooted rooted in a like there was a real physicality to this, so there was no yep. real, uh, I suppose, pending ideological threat with a group of people who were apparently wanting to feel better. Right? Yeah.
1: No, exactly. There wasn't this. Uh, in fact, it's sort of in the ethos of Falun Gong to uh, you know to be just separate from politics. And I think the whole like political interactions happens in the midst of the fact that this group is being persecuted, and they are now by necessity you know, pointing to the ones who are persecuting them and, right. and, you know, and the atrocities of the communist party and such. But prior to that, it's essentially, you know, it's these spiritual practices that's rooted in principles of truthfulness, compassion, and forbearance. Those are its its tenets, And then it has these five slow moving exercises that look, as you mentioned, like Tai Chi. So um, the popularity of Falun Gong, I think it grew very quickly. I think the communist party was concerned about it. Uh, the leaders decided to to ban the practice and began repressing it. And what happens in China when that's the case is that essentially all the media is is controlled by the, the government. So it's this constant narrative. All of a sudden, Falun Gong goes from being something that, you know, everyone around you is practicing, you know, perhaps one out of 10 or one out of 15 people. And now it's this evil we have to get rid of because it's going to destroy the country kind of out of the blue. Right. And so there were people who benefited from it. I think that became their their, uh, their faith or their spiritual practice. But at the same time as people who, who, um, you know, reported many health benefits from the exercises and such. And so they just felt, Hey, this isn't right. I don't want to give it up. And this created this tension, you know, the government saying you have to stop practicing and people continuing to practice. And, and uh, this leads to what we have here, where there's this, this fight over the narrative, over the message that leads to the TV hijacking.
0: Is there uh yeah, clearly you're very intimate, intimately involved in this was this uh I guess, approach to filmmaking kind of on your radar if you will from a social change perspective from a social justice human rights point of view I know uh, you definitely have a bit of history there uh, for sure but could you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that uh, or or did it kind of unfold for you a little bit as as films often do as these stories often do and you just started to see the the, the points and the dots connecting and 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 the ideas culminating going wow have we got something here
1: Yeah. Well, I think I talked a little bit about the sort of human rights concerns that I was sympathetic with, obviously, but I think, you know, there's something else you touched on that I didn't quite answer there, uh, which was, you know, from a filmmaker perspective, when this, when this kind of story falls on your, in your lap. I mean, there's two, you can't separate the two components. I mean, there's the human aspect. You, you meet people who are coming out who endured these remarkable stories and you feel like, Hey, this is something you want to, you want to put together. But then there's this, there's this element of it where it's just, uh, more or less a high story that has written itself and when those things fall into your lap it's just like wow this is quite remarkable um you look for that as a filmmaker especially in documentary because real life seldom imitates you know the ideal narrative as closely as you would like so th- that was very intriguing and i think the other thing that was intriguing here was the lens of the artist that really attracted me because you have someone who i mean there's other documentaries that have used animation very well i mean flea was a big hit last year Um, I I go back to Waltz with Bashir that I liked a lot, Tower was interesting, kind of using the Roto method, right? So I feel like there's, there's films that have used it very well. But what I saw that was unique here as an opportunity was that the animation wasn't just the, you know, artistic decision by the invisible hand of the director. It is something that is intimate to the storytelling. We have an artist who is channeling his own nostalgia and longing for his mm. lost home, mm. his own trauma from having been imprisoned and, and tortured, right? And all of these emotions and trying to understand an event through the art- artistic process. And so that is very unique. And that's what brings in this layer of the sort of live action component of a of, of seeing Dashong interviewing people. And it also grounds it because you see the real life people and you see them translated into the animated world. So I feel like it added another layer and um and and gave us this lens to look at the potential that art has to bring understanding uh, and also potentially catharsis in that artistic process i thought that, that was really unique and that's what excited me it created a very challenging i'll be honest production process because typically you know if you're going to do an animated film you you finish the film first like in the sense of like you know you record your audio you have your script everything's done and then you start animating because it's very you know, time consuming and expensive. And in documentary, if you're going to shoot a traditional documentary, you might go shoot 100 hours of footage and then the story emerges when you're in the editing suite, right? And so we're trying to do both at the same time because, right. you know, we're animating scenes, but then as you can see through the film, we see the artistic process playing out. So we're just doing both at the same time, hoping that somehow this is going to come together. And it was a, a giant leap of faith in that regard, but I it bet. gave us a unique, a,
0: a unique, very output, unique, feel. yeah, very unique, no, no doubt. I love, I love your phrase. Uh, I think it was, you know, just seeing, seeing this through the lens of the artist and allowing us mm-hmm. as viewers to see through the lens of the artist. I think, I think um, uh, there's a comment and I can't remember exactly who it is, but I think it's uh, Dajong who says uh, it's, it's about art based on shared memory. And I think that's super interesting for me uh, on so many levels. And I think, you know, as we see what's going on politically today, you know, Ukrainian war, what's happening in Taiwan with the Chinese and the military, how the u s. is responding, what's happening in Florida with the former President Trump, you know, the man who shall not be named, you know. And uh, uh, misinformation. You know, yeah. a, a different kind of oppression, right? Uh, yeah. uh, and, and 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 all this data coming at us, and you kind of go, How, how big, just big question mark. So art yeah. through shared memory is fascinating yeah. and complicated. Can 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 you unpack that a little bit for us?
1: Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. I love it. Um, you know, it's this idea that um I think it's you know, Aristotle when he's talking about um, you know poetry right you said well i mean which is essentially storytelling and and we've interpreted a lot of that in terms of filmmaking nowadays but it's it's this idea that it's more um it's more about universals than it is about particulars so you know history deals with particulars and so when you're in the documentary space, you obviously have to pay attention to those things. Facts are important. Uh, you know, the, the details are important. But what makes a film resonate and and makes it universal is finding those universal qualities. Like, what is the struggle at play here, right? And mm. this this struggle to be understood, the struggle for the truth, the role that misinformation and propaganda and sort of a monopoly on control of a message, the, the impact that that has. And it's interesting because, you know, you hopefully as an individual, when you're making a film, you just find something that really deeply connects with you. Even if you haven't shared the experiences of these people, you know, that are, that you're depicting on screen, you you find something that resonates with you and you're trying to channel that and reflect it on the screen so that others can have that kind of experience that's universal. And you always, you look at it and you're saying, well, from an, you know, from an outside perspective, we're talking about an event that took place 20 years ago or essentially 20th anniversary this year of this event. And, uh, you know, and it's a group that a lot of people probably don't understand or know very much about. Is this going to resonate? But then people are watching the film. They're like, wow, it's so timely. And that to me really speaks that, okay. I think we've managed to find those elements that are universal. You know, when the film was introduced in the Netherlands, we screened at the uh, in The Hague at the um, Movies That Matter Festival and the secretary general of foreign affairs was introducing the film at a special screening. And he, you know, he just he compared it to the, uh, the state TV journalist in Russia who had You know, raise the sign, sort of countering the war in 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 Ukraine, and obviously, you know, facing consequences for that kind of action, and also comparing the characters in the film to uh, you know our film subjects to Tank Man, and this idea of standing up. So it's like people can get this universal theme. They they don't have to be part of the Falun Gong community or already invested in the human rights cause in China to be able to to resonate with this kind of universal struggle for the truth and this idea of the role that uh, that narrative plays in atrocities. Because if you want a lot of people to repress other people, to mistreat them, to think of them as less than and, and, and sort of these others that are unworthy of our sympathy, you need to construct a false narrative and push that and people need to buy into it.
2: and Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host.
0: You know, I, yeah, I love, I love everything you said in so many places we could go. And I just want to make it known on the face-to-face uh, platform that I did not invoke Aristotle. That was you. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, 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 just Jason, I've been studying and reading philosophy for about thirty-five years. So, thank thanks for opening up that door. <laughs> thanks, that's...
1: thanks for not leaving it all on your shoulders. Right, <laughs> <laughs> that's
0: right. That's so brilliant. So, so couple couple things that I find really interesting. First of all, I love the fact that one of the original meetings or a very important meeting took place at KFC. In in China, I mean, come on! Is that not deeply, deeply ironic on a, on a lot of levels from from a Western sort of values perspective? It's just beautiful to me. I mean, that's a lecture in in the making. If if you ask Great me, point. that's, that's yep. an essay in the making. It's just so so beautiful. What I want to know is what did they order? You know. Uh, <laughs> um, so well, so, there,
1: you have to wait for the sequel. So I'll, I'll sorry, have to but... wait for the sequel on that.
0: Um, so so but 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 um, so De says. You know, Chinese comics, for him, uh, hmm. that's when he fell in love with the art. And I think if I remember correctly, I'm just kind of looking here at my notes, but he he talked about Chinese values, yeah, coming out in the comics. I mean, talk about irony, that yeah. this is where his uh, form of expression, where his, frankly, his lens. Yeah. Or, or, or the lens that we would ultimately see through is being developed in the very country that he goes on to push back against through For his sure. art and through his animation. Well, it's fascinating and amazing. And,
1: and that started to come through in the interviews, right? Because it's like the way he started to talk about Liang and Big Truck, the sort of the, the key figures behind right, the, sure. the TV hijacking later on in our interviews and, and as things, he started to talk about them in, you could see his understanding evolve and you could see, um, you know that he started to describe them in in the way that he was describing these heroic figures right. in in that had inspired him, and so this is I think a key thing to to differentiate with the, you know, with the Chinese comics is that they were not um, much like what he's producing now when he does these Western superhero comics. I mean, that's where if you're you know at the top of your game in the comic space, you get a you know you get a job with DC, you work with. Uh, he was working with Dark Horse and doing the Star Wars comics at the time and stuff, right? So this is where you go, but that's not the types of comics that the Chinese were reading when he was growing up. These were stories about these characters like UFA and all of these sort of historic, like heroic figures who exemplify different Chinese values, and that's and it was that's what resonated with him and inspired him to, to head on this journey. And then as he's telling the story, which he begins with, you know, at the at the outset of this sort of excursion into the into the tv hijacking he has very mixed feelings because obviously yeah, he sympathized sure. with the effort to get the the message out about the injustice and the misinformation and such but he felt you know they were kind of poking the bear because the hammer came down so heavily after this that was it really worth it and the human cost was so high including for himself right but i think spending the time with these individuals and without giving too much away i mean he he matures in his his understanding of it and that's why i felt like you could see him discussing them in the terms of the people who exemplify these values who even they may have made in in the past a lot of great sacrifices as well but they're kind of remembered for that because they exemplify these values and so that's that that sort of just closed the whole loop for me right is this it, it, you can see it
0: so would um, so where where does pacifism come into this? You know, I've I've often gotten into often I suppose they're philosophical conversations because most of us are never going to actually have to step into that kind of a, a context where we're going to need to make a decision like that. I would call myself, and I'm going to go on record as a hope so pacifist, you right. know. Um, and and I sort of got that from De Jong a little bit, and I would imagine that's a part of the Falun Gong uh, mm. of values. Mm-hmm. I haven't dug, done a really deep dive yet, but mm-hmm. any any thoughts on that? Because that's really interesting about the pushback and the hijack. Because ultimately, it's a it's a crime in that country and in most countries, yep. And, yep. and and and. An act of violence, if you will, right? It's it's uh, an act yeah, of revolution. damaging property. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. De- yeah.
1: So, and that's very interesting. And that's why I left in this kind of internal debate. First of all, right. his own internal like misgivings about the event. But then, even within the community, when people realize that they're planning this thing and people are like, is this a good idea? This is people are going to be against us even more. We're going to be interrupting their TV broadcasts. We're damaging property. This is actually illegal. You know, there, you see this debate. And that is a great. Question about you know where does the passivism begin and the sort of the more overt activism begin okay. and I think I think for Falun Gong I think for the individuals like Liang and Big Truck the reason they were able to persuade others to their sort of understanding of it is that I think at a certain point if passivism. As a rule, can also become a uh, complicity. You know what I mean? Because it it isn't as though they, you know, took hostages and you know and 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 shot innocent bystanders and stuff like this. They essentially took over the public airwaves, which at least, in as they're described, are supposed to be in the public interest anyway. They're supposed to be, you know, instead right. of you know. So this is how they they justified it. Is like we're basically bringing the the voice back to the people, giving a and and they recognized, I think, through their own personal experience the role in the abuses that the narrative was playing. So it's essentially also uh, countering human rights abuses. And and from their perspective, what's interesting too, is that when you speak to the individuals in China, a lot of it is, yes, they wanted to help their own situation for sure, in terms of like lessening the persecution of, of themselves and their fellow ad, uh, Falun Gong adherents. But I think there's a layer to it as well, where they really felt The Chinese people who were participating in the campaign against Falun Gong were not necessarily doing it out of like a self-initiated ill will, but really misled. They were misled about the nature of this group and to see them as an enemy. And so they felt that those people were kind of taken advantage of and harmed as well because they're participating in this campaign, right?
0: Yeah, Jason. You know what's so interesting? So I mentioned earlier how what I remember, and it's been a while since I've seen a protest, a Falun Gong protest. But I remember even I even said to my wife uh, this morning, Elizabeth, we and I were chatting about the film and and my experience of it and so on, and how I you know was going to be interviewing you shortly, and I said, you know, it's fascinating that I even emotively my reaction is, oh well, they're just a cult, Mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. and I did not exactly get a lot of uh, media. Uh, are about what was going on at the time. But I, I just wonder about that. There's a phrase in the film, nothing but slander. Yeah, that was coming out yeah. about them. Even that was kind of poisoning, you know, uh, the the airwaves for me. You know, in my understanding, and my perspective, and 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 obviously, I think it's not only is it a is it a is it an affirmation in a sense? Uh, maybe the wrong word of of all maybe that's wrong right now with journalism and news and so on. But it's also mm-hmm. a challenge to me to say, hang on a minute here. I got to dig yeah. a bit deeper. I, there's right. a re, there's a responsibility here for me. What about the greater good? And right, went, right. So yeah. I just I find it unsettling that that's my recollection.
1: Yeah. Right? No, that's a hey. That's Deeply disturbing, yep. right? Yep. No, I hear you absolutely. And I, I actually looked at this, so uh, I ended up making a second film in the midst of this one. This I mean, this one took an awful long time, so I couldn't do only edit. Like Way to add more to courtroom. your to
0: do list. Yeah,
1: <laughs> that's right. So it was close to six years. But what ended up happening is there's this kind of like element of the story. Um, which getting into like the nuts and bolts of like the actual misinformation, right. That we don't dive into in, in, in a lot of depth, it's all about their effort to kind of counter it. And we understand the human cost of it, but kind of the, You know, going down that rabbit hole and trying to ascertain, well, what's really happening? What's true? What's fiction? Right. And there was a a sort of key element of the misinformation campaign, I would say, is this self immolation event that took place in Tiananmen Square Mm. in Beijing. And they they said, hey, look, Falun Gong led people to burn themselves. And this thing aired during. chinese new year when families were getting together and they're just like wow falun gong is burning and destroying families like immediately all the sympathy that may have existed in china uh, up to that point just completely was destroyed and so i met with uh you know we we interviewed a lot of individuals we spoke with um the the only journalist who was on the square during this event Uh, actually it's another film it's called ask no questions it's actually in you can stream it on amazon prime and and itunes and all that right now so people who are it's a very different film by the way it's not a I would say an artistic animated film. It's a journalistic investigative documentary. But if people are interested in sort of that heavy, deep dive into this, you raised a number of questions there of like, how do we end up with these ideas? And what I found, because, you know, the journalist who was in the square, you know, she's the only witness and she's told that she can't pursue the story. She works for CNN and they're basically, hey, if you pursue this story, we may lose our bureau here. Um, We may all of these difficulties and challenges. And it's very understandable, the calculations at that time about why people would not look into the story. But then what you notice that happens is there's this kind of like, there's this element when we don't really dig and we don't push to find out what's really going on is that it muddies the water, and so it is. You don't have to necessarily think. Well, I think they're bad because of this that I've looked into, and and I have a really solid standpoint to to sort of judge them by. It's more. It just muddies the water, and that's enough. You don't because if you're going to stick your neck out for a group and really go to bat and try and, you know, get to the bottom of the misinformation, you're not. You, well, you won't do that if you feel like. Well, maybe this group is not worthy of my sympathy, and so propaganda doesn't need to be irrefutable. It just needs to muddy the water. And that was a huge lesson for me in sort of that other, you know, expose. So,
0: so I hate the fact that we're coming to the end of our interview. I I, can't, I I just feel like we barely scratched the surface. I say that all the time. That should be the tagline for my podcast, actually. <laughs> Listen in as we barely scratch the surface. Yeah. Uh, it's just, Jason, I just so loving uh, chatting with you. And, and again, I hope everyone gets to see this film. A couple, couple things did you learn anything about in the moment? So, so, h- how do we filter? Like, I mean, I think this is a really valid question. I've got young kids and teenagers who are way more mature and advanced than I was at this point, reading news that I wouldn't have had access to, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah sure, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, we can, we, we can push back on all those forms of media, but they're also giving us access sort of to the real work, you know, whatever that means. And yet, here we are still, Handling disinformation, not really knowing maybe what happened in Ottawa. Uh, What about Mm -hmm. this vaccination thing? You know, and Mm -hmm. so on Mm -hmm. and so on, and and it continues Mm -hmm. to sort of bubble to the surface. What do easier to look back, I suppose. But what about about right now? Any thoughts? Any advice? Any comments on
1: that? I think for all of us, do our best to be more tolerant of opinions that we dislike. I think that's very important because we have this thing and and i understand the concerns around misinformation like i totally get it but i don't look at what's happened in china and say well geez the authorities need more power to clamp down on misinformation you know what i mean that's right. not the root right. of the problem that's the root of the, the problem yeah. no the root of the problem is that in the end you have to trust somebody so you can trust one person to do all the thinking for you and have control over everything or you have to trust individuals at large and people are going to go down rabbit holes and have wrong ideas that's inevitable, but we need to be able to look at alternative points of view. And we need to be able to, to not just, uh, you know, come to quick judgments and rule people out and, and all this kind of thing. We need to be able to tolerate ideas that we don't like and have debate and, and things are difficult now because of the new world we live in. But I think that it's more important than ever that we're, you know, and we used to be that way a little bit more. Mm-hmm. You know, what I mean, we could have people left and right who would kind of disagree on the best way to approach things but understand yep. that both sides are coming at it with goodwill and i think we've lost that and we need to find it it's 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 essential and i think what we see in this film is a bit of a kind of like warning signal of what could mm. happen if we lose it entirely
0: yeah there seems to be a, a, an anger a, a toxicity there's a there's a poisonous component to i don't even know if i'd call it debate but mm-hmm. you know dialogue mm-hmm. conversation that's going on currently in probably globally. It's not just in the West. I mean, we can certainly point the finger at our neighbors down South, but it's, 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 it's happening everywhere. And I love that. I love your comment about it being a, a just a warning signal for, for all of us. Um, can we talk just as we wrap up here about love and hate? I just yeah. so love how you, you, you kind of, you don't wrap the film up this way, but, but there's a moment where De Jong talks about, about the irony of how, how he was taught to love through this more. Oh, I don't know. I guess, I guess you would just call it nationalism, I suppose. And so I guess throughout his life, he's had to turn that on its head with his own pursuits and his own family and his friends and so on. Any, any thoughts on that?
1: Well, I mean, you know, I mentioned my wife and filmmaking partner, Marshall Optus, she grew up in China and I grew up in the, you know, I, I grew up in a Catholic school. And so at some point in our relationship, we, we discussed, oh, yeah, yeah, we, I was taught a trinity growing up. And she said, well, so was I. And so her trinity was a little bit different with the idea that they were taught was the, the you know, the country, the, the party, the country and the people are a trinity. And so the idea there is that if anyone criticizes the Communist Party, they are criticizing China. And at this, and then by extension, they're criticizing you. And what this does is this kind of like, it sounds outrageous, but anything that's outrageous, if that's all you hear and that's what you grow up in, it is very hard to think outside of it, right? And so you have a lot of people and uh, Chinese people who will look at what's happening in China with Falun Gong and feel like, hey, don't lose space for China. Don't expose like what's happening because you're actually losing face for the country and you're losing face for me. And the party has intentionally taught people to think this way. And so I I just uh, it's important not to, first of all, to come at odds with those people because they're not necessarily coming at it with malice. This is what they've been taught. And and I think that's where the love comes in. It's like, okay, it takes some courage to be willing to say something that people are going to say you know, that, that they disagree with or they already hate you and you're still going to speak up in defense of that, of that group or, or, or or you know, these individuals. But I think you have to do so in order to let people, you know, uh, even if they react negatively to start to say, OK, you know what, maybe I have I've been given the wrong information. And it's only when there's real understanding that we can get past this kind of like and then the, the authorities and the party can't, can't manipulate people to mete out these abuses. So that's I think that's the real ultimate solution.
0: It's so good. So many places we could continue going. I, you know, let's, I'm going to have to wrap it up. I'd love for you to tell us just a little bit more about, uh, you're on a festival tour. Uh, you're mm-hmm. opening on the 23rd here in, in Canada. Can you talk a little bit about that so listeners can have access? And again, before we, or before I forget, it's eternalspringfilm.com for more information about the film. Uh, yeah, September 23rd.
1: That's right. Yeah, big opening date in Canada. So uh, we'll open in. Montreal, Toronto, and Vancouver, so stay tuned. Uh, Cineplex uh, through uh, outside of Quebec, and we'll be at the Cinema du, du Musée in in Quebec, in Montreal as well. So, uh, But you can watch uh, eternalspringfilm.com uh, when the dates and showtimes are there. I would love to see people out. We'd love to make it a, a nice long run. Uh, and, and if people are connecting with it, that's, I think, what we'll have the opportunity to do. We're in the U.S. Uh, at Film Forum. If you have listeners in New York, uh, that will be our. our open. Did I? I think I just announced it. It hasn't been announced yet. but <laughs> <There you> go. <laughs> so, so it's coming. We've said it's October 14th, but we will have a, a well, wider I mean, I yeah, the, release the, in the, the US.
0: The, as well, mean, I think the takeaway is stay tuned, and I yeah. think you know, and and stay tuned for a, a very particular awards program in uh, in 2023. It's just again, uh, congratulations and brilliant film. Thank you for bringing this, uh, you know, to our attention. It's been there all along, of course. But but uh, so so appreciated having you on face to, uh, face today. We've been ta- chatting with Jason Loftus about his uh, a beautiful and brilliant new film Eternal Spring. Thanks, Jason, for taking some time uh, to chat with me today. Thanks for having me, David. Appreciate it. So there you have it, my interview with Jason Loftus, uh, talking about his uh, brilliant uh, new film, Eternal Spring, award-winning film. Uh, check it out online, eternalspringfilm.com. More information there. And don't forget as well, davidpecklive.com for more information about the work I do and podcasts, uh, podcasting info. You can find so many different in- interviews there as well. It's all under one umbrella. And please, Wherever you're listening to podcasts, subscribe to face to face leave us a review. It, it only takes a couple of minutes or less, and we really would appreciate it. It matters a great deal in the long run to getting noticed online. Um, thanks so much for listening. Uh, really do appreciate it for, for so many, many reasons. And uh, my name is David Peck, and this is face to face